Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that we've launched our Patreon site and that you can now become a supporter of the show. The awards in there include artist features on our website and shoutouts on the show, as well as open invitations to join fellow patrons in our roundtable discussion episodes. So if you think you might be interested, please take a look at the link in the description or just go to patreon.com slash at percussion. So slash A-T percussion. Okay, thanks for listening. Awesome, awesome. So if everyone's ready, we can begin, yeah? Yeah, sure. listening to episode 259 of At Percussion Podcast, which we will be releasing on December 3rd. My name is Ksenia Kumjanovic, and with me, as always, are Carly Vina. Hey, everybody. Hey, Carly. And Casey Cangelosi. Hey, how's it going? Hey, going well. Um, we're missing Ben here. He couldn't join us, but he Woo-hoo! sends all his love. Uh, yay, Ben! <laughs> Good job for having a life, Um, but uh, (laughs) we're going to go back to just the folks in this amazing virtual room, and we're going to ask Casey what happened in history on our release date. Yeah, I found one. So you know how, Ksenia, you like to criticize the sources I gave you all to find these news items? You mean criticize everything you say? uh Uh-huh, including (laughs) these, uh, these links I've generously contributed so that we can have some news. I'm going to criticize them a little bit today, too, because it's really hard to find classical news and it's, you know, as in classical composers, compositions, that sort of thing. But it's very easy to find like birth dates, death dates, dates of premieres. But like, come on, who cares, uh, generally speaking? So we try to like if we can tie that into something interesting, great. And this is a little interesting. I, I uh, kind of had to do a, a double look at, at this little thing. So I'm just going to read it right as it comes from our one of our sources, and that is 1883 birth of Austrian composer Anton Webern in Vienna, right? Okay. And a uh, little fun information about him. The thing most people know, he was accidentally shot while smoking a cigar outside his daughter's home on the 15th of September, 1945 by an allied sh- soldier. Uh, and then this is the part I had to do a double look at, and that is poetic justice since it has been learned that he helped to create music based on the secret code for the Nazis. Have you guys ever heard that about Webern, that his 12-tone music was actually like secret codes for the Nazis? Uh-huh, no, I didn't. No. Yeah, well, good, good. You're right, it's not true. So that's, oh, no. <laughs> but yet it's reported and listed just as fact here. So I kind of looked at that like, wait, I've never heard that. That's like way interesting. And that kind of makes sense with 12-tone music. Like, if you wanted to do that, I, I guess you could. That That's kind of cool. So I dug into it a little bit. And apparently this is a well-reported fact that got spread around, according to what I saw, in 1998. It, like, went all over. And it, it turns out it all comes from this one little critical write-up of Webern's music. I mean, as you all know all the 12 tone second Viennese school folks. I mean, their music was, you know, either really, really admired by very few and generally despised by everyone in the public. So one critical writing, total satire said, actually what this is, see, this is 12 tone secret Nazi code. That's how this makes sense. That's why it sounds so crazy. But I just thought it was really interesting to find that today in a world when like so much information, misinformation is spread around. And it's so hard to just know, like, you know, our presidential debate just happened a few nights ago. And it's like, it's just so frustrating because it's like, well, this person says that's true. This other person says this other thing is true. And if you're, if you don't know, like which one is true, well, then like, you don't, you don't really have any basis for comparison and to like consider any good argument, which is where a lot of people are frustrated. So I just thought it was interesting, like, wow, this little misconception and what would be a really fun fact is reported and it's totally not true. So if you dig into it a little bit, you'll find musicologists totally agree. No, like Webern absolutely was not that. He endorsed the, um, he endorsed the Nazi party like a lot of people did because they had to do that because their mm-hmm. 
their national pride was one thing. It's, it's just like nowadays, like, man, I don't like Donald Trump, but I support the United States of America. Like I'm an American. It's, it's a different thing. So anyway, I thought that was, that was really interesting. And um, one other source where it's kind of uh, spread falsely. Uh, let's see. This is from one of the articles I found. Webern's patriotism led him to endorse the Nazi regime. For example, in a series of letters to someone named Joseph Huber, who was a who was serving in the army and himself held such views, meaning he supported Hitler and the Nazi Party, openly supported the Nazi Party. Webern describes to this person, this open supporter. He describes Hitler on May 2nd, 1940 as, quote, this unique man who created the new state of Germany. Thus, Alex Ross, the writer whose book's very, very famous, characterizes Webern as, as unashamed Hitler enthusiasts. Like, what? Because of those two quotes? Like, because of you calling him unique and the new state that's created? No, he's talking to a Hitler supporter. You're going to, like you're going to like sugarcoat how you talk to a friend that way a little bit. So it's just, it's just amazing. Like a few little mis misattributed quotes turns Webern into like all this mis misinformation. So I thought that was relevant for today. I'm sure some other stuff happened on release date, but I don't know what it is. This is a great musical news. <laughs> Thank you. Good job, Casey. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Um, awesome. So now we get to the um, incredible part and um, I'm really excited about this obviously and I feel like I, I say this too many times but we've been so fortunate uh, at least during my my time on the I podcast him. I booked him you did you did good job Cangelosi good job <laughs> I'm just making it clear our guest for this episode is a true powerhouse, um, born in Torino, Italy in 1993. He studied at Conservatorio Giuseppe Verdi before moving to Munich to study with Peter Sadlo, which is amazing. We're going to be talking about that. Um, he won the ARD competition in 2014, which is incredible because so, so young and and killed that competition and uh, received the Credit Suisse uh, Young Artist Award at the Luzern Festival in 2016. In 2018, he premiered Avner Dorman's Eternal Rhythm, which I also psyched to talk about. Uh, he plays in several chamber music ensembles with really big names uh, like Lucas and Arthur Yusen, the fabulous pianist brothers and Alexei Gerasimes, uh, again, a percussionist friend here, a star. Um, his debut album, Immortal Bach, is a true piece of art that juxtaposes Bach with contemporary masterpieces, and it's fabulous. You should go listen to it if you haven't yet. And really exciting, it's since 2019, he holds a teaching position at the high, well, it's literally translated as high school of music, but it's not a high school, obviously. It is, it is a conservatory, it is, it is a university in Lausanne, and is a visiting professor at the Berlin Akademie der Kunst, their arts academy. So by now you figured it out uh, that our guest is the fabulous Simone Rubino. Simone, welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, it's, it's so great to have you, and I hope people have been... It's great to be here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I hope people were able to actually understand what the hell I was saying because I feel like my voice was like speaking <laughs> with excitement the entire time. No, no, it was very clear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell us, how have you been? Where are you now? What's what's up? Uh, we always start with a little bit of what's up with Corona in your yeah. life. Uh, but where are you? How's music uh, right now? Actually, right now I'm I'm, I'm living I'm living in Germany in Rostock, close to Berlin, uh, and um, right now I'm I'm in quarantine because it just came, um, uh, I was playing in a different uh, red zones, so risk zones, and that's why uh, today's my third day of quarantine, enjoying actually a lot the time to read and, you know, to um, to cook. I, I right now had a beautiful lunch. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm very, I, I, I can say I'm very fortunate and um, I'm fine. And um, yeah, I think that's the most important thing. So how, how about you, actually? How is the situation there right now? It's great. <laughs> loves to answer this question. <laughs> I mean, don't you follow the news? <laughs> you know well, and actually, we don't know. You know, we're really, we're recording on October, what is it, 25th. 
And okay. yeah, so we're going to have big election news by the time this is released. And we don't, right. know, we don't know what right. that is yet. So yeah, right. I, we're, we're far too ahead in our booking. We try not to be this far ahead because the world can be so different in one month from now. So sure. I try to remind everyone, hey, whatever, you know, whatever major crazy thing just happened the other day, we don't know about it yet. So sure. sure. Well, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no, it's it's okay. I feel like I feel like all of our teaching. I mean, we all teach in some university capacity. Yeah. It seems like we all follow roughly the same guidelines uh, and ideas. Way. Yeah, a mix of teaching online, a mix of teaching offline. Sure. And we all seem to be doing various Zoom type clinics and things. And yeah. activity like the conversation and episode we're having today has increased a lot. And in yeah. fact, you just had a performance, right? Yeah, I had a concert four days ago in Munich was a, a great experience, you know, to play uh, in front of public and, you know, to share <laughs> music with people. <laughs> what did you perform? This was the German premiere of a new opera written for me, actually, by an amazing Italian composer from a younger generation. It's called Lamberto Cortoni. He mm -hmm. was um, a student of Giovanni Solima, the, the great cellist and composer. And uh, yeah, we, we just did the second premiere, so German premiere. It's very interesting because I'm now trying to you know find my way of making art with percussion <laughs> and i discovered that um voice human voice it's uh, it's a very important instrument of mine right now and that's why i'm also taking classes of uh singing so i studied uh sing really uh, yeah, yeah yeah that's amazing i mean you have you have a beautiful voice i heard yeah, uh, on a few you. occasions you singing and then i was like How's it possible? Why why is he so talented twice? But please do share. That's amazing. Yeah, you know, I actually start uh, when I was young to sing before I played. I, I had a like to 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 be part of the um, children's choir in opera. And it was, I think it was an amazing experience uh, for me, but also for my colleagues, you know, because as a, as a child being in a stage and uh, sharing art um, and having experience with different people uh, coming from the art world, so Reggie, a dramaturg, and as well, you know, different conductors. It was an amazing world, really. And and in a way, I think this um, helped me to discover and, and after to to be better in, in a way of uh, my body language. So I, I had more consciousness of my body language, which is actually, I think, very important for, for us percussionists. And, and then, of course, I start playing percussion. And right now I'm coming a little bit <laughs> back. <laughs> and that's why I, I first start to, to sing again when I met actually Evner was I think 2016 or 15. This was in Lexington. I was playing after a competition, The Frozen in Time in, in the US. And I had a masterclass also there at the U music university. And then I was, yeah, just explaining uh, percussionists, the colleagues, how we should make a line. And that's why I just sang the line. And, and since, since this experience, actually Hebner was very inspired and he told me yeah, what, why do you have such a nice voice? And then, and then, I, yeah, I explained him the reason why, and and then he said, okay, well, for the next concerto, I think we should use uh, the voice, and and, <laughs> and that's the reason also why uh, Havner actually uh, composed the fourth movement of Eternal Rhythm for uh, tenor, vibraphone, and uh, strings. Wow, that's, <laughs> so, that's incredible. That's yeah, amazing. This, so, so is it hard? I'm sure it happens at every gig, like you're trying to premiere a new piece, but the audience starts chanting, bad touch, bad touch. <laughs> of course, of course. Like, is that what all would... Yeah. <laughs> yes, and, and, but, but really, Kezi, this is very impressive because every time I play bad touch in the, in the concert, I think it's the most inspiring piece. Uh, for, Senya, for... Did you hear that? <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, it cut out. It's cut out. I couldn't. What? I think I think I, I have a BS detector. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, of course. I, I'm sorry. I don't say this enough, but Cangelosi, you are a brilliant composer, and yeah. you do you do have excellent works. And I'm I'm really sorry. I think the <laughs> listeners by now think that I'm actually at war, but at I war. am I am a huge huge fan. I don't yes. accept. I don't accept. You don't your accept this offering. It's fine. It's because I'm European and I'm better dressed always. Um, <laughs> Every, I'm the worst dressed person here for sure. You are. There's always. No, no. no. 
<laughs> well, well, seriously though, you know, you mentioned your like literal voice. What one of the things that it seems like is such a mysterious piece to being a soloist for a lot of people is having your like performance voice. Mm -hmm. And it took me a minute to realize, oh, wait, you're talking about your literal singing voice. Can you describe your like persona voice, your performance voice and how it is different or how you've crafted it over the years? And yeah. that's a really hard question, I know. Sure. Well, no, 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 Casey, I think it's very logical. If, uh, look, first during the last days after competition, after I was uh, also, you know, having a lot of uh, lessons uh, with Peter Sadlow, I always uh, was searching for a way you know to be horizontal in the music because of course you know as a percussion player we have a absolutely vertical movement which is also connected in which means in the music uh, we do play almost uh, of the time vertical music which is great but i think uh, we still are not done we still need i think to discover more about the horizontal way of making music which every instrument uh, should have after uh, of course I, I understood this is very connected uh, with the movement and so on and this was, I think, the first time where I thought, okay, I also need my voice to show this part of music because at the end we, we play for the music. And, and this was for me very, very frustrating at, at the beginning because I couldn't find any way of playing horizontal because, as again, the, the movement, it's, it's vertical. So, um, and then I realized actually what, what the voice can give to music, it's, you know, unique. Unique, and that's why I found uh, this combination between the verticality uh, of, of the percussion and the horizontality of of, of the voice—a um, great combination. Which doesn't mean that we shouldn't find a way of playing percussion in, in an horizontal way. I think there are now great players which are uh, working on it, and and that's great. And I think it should, we should go on in this process, which is, I think, it's a very long process. But in this specific case, I found it could be also very interesting for music and for the art to combine this, these two dimensions. Speaking of how long a process it is, because a lot of times my advice is just like, to the, to the student is, hey, you're doing everything right. You just got to keep going. It just takes sure. a long time. How, how, how long, I know it's very hard to answer this, but how, how long could you like roughly estimate it, it took you until you thought, oh, okay, here's, here's where my, my performance aura, my performance voice is. I found it. Yeah, well, until now, I can say 15 years at least, but I think this is, is going to be long all my life, actually. Yeah, it's ongoing. <laughs> so it's yep. everything going. And, uh, you know, because you know different peoples, you know, you're going to play probably uh, tomorrow or in two years or in 20 years, you will know different personalities and you will have different experience, you know, and everything what we live, we will bring this in our world, I think. And that's why I think mm -hmm. it's a, a long life uh, process. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Casey, you wanted to talk about um, being a soloist, rightfully, and we have a, an excellent expert here on how to develop solo career. There's a nice little article, sort of. That's sort you of. Yeah. Well, and just to be clear, I don't want to talk about anything. I just want to relax. But <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm excuse your existential crisis. Okay. Well, I thought, I thought this might I thought this might fuel a little discussion since we have Simona here and he is such a renowned and busy soloist. He fits this description so well. But uh, Berkeley College of Music there in Boston has sort of like a, a, a career path description and they have a little soloist category. Like, what does it mean to be a soloist? So I, I don't have a huge ton to report here, but I thought I would just uh, read some quick descriptions of what they say there and maybe we can see how that fits into mm -hmm. what Simone has done and what we see. So this is called soloist at a glance. Career path is the first item. Most soloists pursue their careers aggressively from a young age, bursting onto the world stage when they win high-level music competition and begin to tour. So that's the first one. The second one is finding work. And there is a little more. I'm just abbreviating these sure. uh, for, for time's sake. Uh, the second one is finding work. And this says winning a prestigious competition is widely regarded as the best way to kickstart one's career as a soloist. 
Hey, Robin. And we've got a Robin appearance, so he's <laughs> here. Let's take a look. Oh, hi. What are you doing? Hi, Robin. He's in one of these moments. Hey, sweetie. Oh. You want to read with me? Oh. <laughs> here, say hi to everybody. You want to say hi to these folks? Hi, Robin. Hi, Robin. <laughs> oh, Robin, look. Oh, look, this is, this is, this is Simone and Carly and Ksenia, Ksenia Shostakovich. Don't my last name. <laughs> but it's easier. It's easier. Okay. Okay. Right, I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish. It's never, it's, he always, he comes in and it's never like a problem. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's never like an actual like disturbance. <laughs> Let's see. So finding work, winning a prestigious competition, and then finding from there, it's a matter of getting an agent, booking a tour, and setting out to test oneself on stages across the world. And then professional skills you'll need, high-level technical skills on a major solo instrument, typically violin, cello, piano, or voice. Obviously, that's Jesus. wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's that's we don't want nobody wants to hear any of those. <laughs> you'll have to have live performance chops. You'll have to know a wide classical repertoire. You'll need to know musical notation. I don't know why they say that. I guess they're just saying like, hey, you'll need to like be able to play music, read music. I don't know. Uh, collaboration, self promotion, and networking. Next one is interpersonal skills. They say that classical conductor Kenneth Wood puts it very well. If you play well, connect with audiences and are easy to work with, nothing else really matters. It's not easy to create a smooth coordinated performance from only one or two rehearsals. And for this, soloists must be humble, communicative, and collaborative. And uh, work life, travel is nearly endless. By plane, by train, and occasionally by car, as soloists become more popular, the area in which they perform expands. Beginning soloists might stick to a small region, but the most successful perform in world tours and hop back and forth between continents. I thought this was cool because, you know, we, we've all probably had friends and students who just say, like, how do we, how do I do it? You know, like, how do I do it? And I mean, my personal you know, my first go-to is like, well, let's start shooting for competitions. That's what I prepare students to do. And of course, I'm kind of a new teacher, but that's what I'm going to continue to do. And yeah, like, like <laughs> perform well, win competitions, but then like, oh man, how, how do you do it? So I don't know. Does that, does that bring any, any of that ringing true or relating to Simone? Well, yeah, because th there is some truth there, but I, I don't think this is the only way. And I think as well, winning a big competition, I think, doesn't mean straight after to be a soloist. What I can tell, you know, a little story uh, of mine, it's how, in, the, in my case, was, and this is what I also uh, tell my students. I think we shouldn't make a competition just because we want to be the best, you know. I think competition should be a chance first to know our limits, because working one year hard, we, we, we get in touch with our limits, body limits, psychologically and emotionally and spiritually, you know. And I think that's very important. But as well, we should use competition, you know, as a way to, to work out our character traits, like moral and uh, performance. So this, I think, if I look back now, this was also, you know, the reason why I said, okay, I will work one year for the RD competition. But also before this, actually, what's most important is uh, to find a professor, a person which, which can really understand you as a person, as musicians, and can really make from yourself your best. And in this case, you know, without Peter, I think this wouldn't be possible. I'm sure. So, um, so that's why I think the most important thing in my life was first to to know Peter Salo, studied with him in Munich, because um, with him um, we could you know make decisions together. He had a, enough experience to coach me, and and straight after you know after winning the competition was okay. I won today, but. I'm not done actually. I'm only starting a new a new way, a new process. And every time I end a step, 
I straight, straight after I said, okay, this is the beginning of something new. And if I can come back, I would say, okay, guys, let's do competition, not as a competitor, but as a chance to grow musically, technically, but especially a way to practice our character uh, traits, morally, especially, and uh, on the performance. Yeah. That's so beautifully yeah. said. Yeah. And that is such a wide, gorgeous perspective that shows how you, I mean, you know that a musician is a person on this planet and that it's so much more than pitch accuracy or rhythm. It's all, sure. it's all connected. Um, but I wanted to go back to learning a little bit more about Sadlo. Um, some of us have not had the pleasure of meeting him, um, but I'd love to know what was it that sparked your curiosity in for, for him? What was, do you know what sparked his curiosity for you? How was your first meeting? What were your lessons like? We would love to know a little bit of that. It was actually very funny because Peter came, I think in 2008 to Turin because he was jury member uh, of a big audition in Turin. For, for as, a, as a solo percussionist. I knew uh, the timpani player of the radio orchestra Turin, and he told me, yeah, look, uh, he's, in a few months is coming, you know, this um, very famous percussionist. I think you should play something for him. Uh, and that's what I did. And, and straight after, I remember um, I was playing, I think, a Rosauro concert or something. You know, I, I was very young, you know, I was 13 or 14. And then I, I, I remember after three or four minutes, Peter came to the artistic director and told him, I think we should organize a concert next year together with, uh, with Simone. <laughs> so this was our first approach. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Uh, wow. And, 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 and this happened. So and the next year we had a concert as a duo partner. And then Peter always invited me to study with him, but I was still very young. I, I was 15. So I said, okay, thank you very much, Peter. But before I want to, to make my bachelor. So I was also, you know, in, in my high school. So I said, mm, I should finish this first and then uh, <laughs> I will come to Munich. And that's what I did. It was very easy. And after, you know, was something, I think we had a, a common energy, something something very animal. I cannot describe the reason and what exactly, but something that bring us together, you know. So I probably was, uh, yeah, I think was something more in the energy, something energetic. And, and that's why we also grow up together very, very fast. So I remember also he was at the beginning very, very hard to me because, you know, I was an 18 years old Italian boy coming from Italy to Germany. So <laughs> it's a different culture, it's a different <laughs> tradition. And I, I was living with my parents and my mother helped me every day to make everything. So, you know, <laughs> this was a very important lesson in my life, actually. And he, I always remember he said, okay, Simone, Today, you're in Germany and forget about the Pavarotti position you always do. So you are now in Germany and you should play for me. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it was the truth. I, I really love to be Pavarotti in the stage and I was playing like this. <laughs> and... <laughs> and he a phase of that though right like it's good everyone should go through a little phase of that so they learn you know, how much they can get away with and then sure you know, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah he did he did amazing so I, I think he was a great pedagogue but as well he was um, for me a mentor you know more more than a professor so i'm very very grateful about this cool so Monet, we were talking a little earlier about finding your own voice and developing your own voice. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit how you approach this with your own students and what advice do you have for young percussionists who are kind of sorting out, figuring out what, where are my strengths? What's my voice and what do I have to say? <laughs> well, I think there are, especially in our world as a percussion player, no limits and i think this should be something very positive for everyone so what i can suggest is just make whatever you feel to do not as an end in itself but just make art and doesn't matter how you do it 
you can do it with a vibraphone or you can do it with a maracas or you can do it with breakdance and baroque music i don't know how there are no limits but i think the most important thing is just make art that's the only thing i think i can suggest do you do you ever find there are limits on repertoire like i know I feel like percussionists are very lucky because we, we are already an interesting feature on the stage. So we can come in playing this really avant-garde, you know, super 20th century music that we, we already kind of have people on our side when we do that because we don't have <laughs> classical repertoire, at least as soloists. But, you know, sort of like I mentioned with Webern, there's so much criticism and there, there's so much talk with orchestras now of like, mm -hmm. oh, we, we really would love to play this new commission, but we don't know if the audience will respond well. And you were so nice to say bad touch always gets good response. I'm just going to put that in there again for Ksenia. And uh, <laughs> we're supposed to fight the ratings. We actually don't despise each other or anything. It's just... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, thank, thanks for saying that. It was nice. But yeah, do you, do you find there's certain repertoire that like that, that doesn't go over well or like audiences really, really want you to do stuff like this? Well, um, yeah, of course, I think we have still very, very less repertoire, which is in a way a limit because it doesn't give us the possibility, you know, to, to express ourselves, to communicate. But on the other hand, I think we should take this as a chance to, to discover a new way of playing new composers. And um, my feeling is that people want to hear percussion more and more. They love every time they get out from a percussion concerto they always, or concert, they always say, please make it more often because this is something we need, you know. This is, in a way, also the reason why I still keep taking risks because this has also risk you know to ask different composers and perform new music because people want to hear uh, percussion concert uh, concerts they they really want that's oh. cool it's almost like hey if there's percussion on stage it is going to be a new thing you know sure expecting a new thing whereas if it's a symphony setting they're expecting beethoven or expecting mozart and then when they don't get beethoven or mozart they're like wait a minute <laughs> What am I listening to? But it's, it's expected with percussions. <laughs> and of course, not every percussion concert is going to be the highlight. But uh, I think we do need the chance uh, as a percussion player also to, to get to know the histories. And we should also have the, the chance to perform new pieces because, well, this is a very important process, I think. I think in 200 years percussion would be probably the, the most important solo instruments, I think. Two or three hundred years, I don't know, but I think in the future this is going to be, this is going to change, I think, the history of the music. Damn. You heard it first here. Exactly, folks. <laughs> Refer back to this, this yeah. prophecy from Simone. <laughs> it, was also, it was also like two, three hundred years, and maybe five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right it's only growing it's like we, sure. we tried it out and and it's only gotten better you know yeah. absolutely yeah i love your extremely positive uh, outlook on life i think i think it's amazing <laughs> and it's not the way i said it it sounds like oh you're, you're like it's silly no not at all it's very very convincing it's it's very cool. convincing um but i was gonna ask uh, we actually got some social media questions and yeah. Several of them came in from our friends around the U.S. Okay. Said, how can I come study with you? Can I come study with you in English? What's the audition of, process? Of and course. So yeah. um, just come to Berlin or Lausanne and yeah, we, we get to know. And it's very easy, actually. <laughs> That's amazing. So the, the programs are both available in English, yeah? Sure, of course. Well, in Berlin, I'm still not sure because, um, you know, I'm also very new now in the school. That's why I still don't know the, the rules. But uh, I think you have, of course, the, uh, the chance to, to learn German. So you, I think you can, in one semester, you need to take a B2 or something. And at the end, I think it doesn't matter uh, the language you speak, you know. That's why I think this is more for history of music or harmony. Uh, that's that's more important but uh yeah i think uh, the especially berlin and well lausanne as well is getting more open to english 
the question came from one of our listeners, Cara Apostol, and okay. actually another one, Antonia Olesik. Um, okay. so both of them are, are very interested, but they, they need to know, cool. should we plan for, you know, should we start learning the language now if we're sure. going to audition there? Or is it okay if we show up and then mumble what, our way? What through? I suggest, what I suggest, I think if you have the chance to, to do it, of course, start now. Uh, to practice or to learn uh, German, because I think um, in, indeed it's also a very important language, which gives you also a possibility, you know, to understand more the culture. But I, I personally think this should be shouldn't be a limit, uh, also, not to speak German. Of course. Of yeah. Course. Well, wonderful there. You heard it here first, folks, again. <laughs> Simone is a new professor and yes, you can go and study starting with English, but then you'll learn more. Um, but before we have uh, Carly dig out some other questions for you, um, can you tell yeah. us about your experience with teaching? Because you are new and how's that been in these past couple of years? <laughs> um, what? You know, it, at the beginning it was strange because um, uh, I still have students which are actually older than me. Uh, so this is a little bit strange because, um, yeah, you know, also sometimes, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I realized this is actually also very interesting because uh, they get very motivated uh, from from someone which is younger or you know it's has a different uh, aspect but um, indeed teaching for me personally it's a way to first to learn because I, I learn so much from my students and it's a, a, a way to grow together so I give you the experience I had on the stage the last uh, 10 years and of course you know new students born with this so they are already in a, in, in, on the next level so I think this is a chance to grow together and and you know bring percussion uh, in a new era uh, and that's why I love you know teaching because also there is a, a responsibility I think which is not only you know to to teach playing or but as well I think um, to teach moral uh, values which is I think very very important I love how, how much you mentioned that. But sorry, before before we dig more into that, could yeah. you uh, could you please also explain to us? So we saw that in Lausanne, yeah. you teach alongside Vasilana, who yeah. we just had on the podcast, who's a lovely friend, and then Sejourné, who too was exactly. on the podcast some some years ago. Um, can you tell us how do you distribute that work with, between the three of you? Yeah, well, basically, um, we divide the work. Emmanuel is uh, doing mostly vibraphone and marimba technique with the students and, you know, coaching the class. Then Vasi is uh, making mostly marimba lessons and I do more setup and, and ensemble coaching. But, you know, we are very flexible and if students uh, want to, to make a piece for marimba with me, we are very open and we do it, you know. We try to be a team, so that's why we are very flexible together as a, as a, as a team and uh, we try to give our best, you know, to students. That's yeah. that's awesome. So do they split lessons between? Uh, sure. Yeah. So everyone gets sure. lessons. All the time. So for, for example, um, uh, in one month, I'm one week in Lausanne. Then uh, the second week and the third week is going to be uh, Emmanuel there. And the fourth week is going to be Vasi. And then, you know, we split the lessons together. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. There, for those listeners, again, who are really interested about how it looks, now we've given them a little bit more of the infrastructure. Sure. Um, lovely. I'm so sorry I misspoke. I have in my head that Sejourné was on the podcast, but I mean, maybe now we can okay. finally get it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and you will consider yourself invited. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. I know. No, it does. It feels like we've, and we say it all the time, like we've had everyone on. <laughs> and we, we have. I thought that with Simone, we are now completing the everyone list. Yeah, I thought you were the last one. <laughs> oh, that's so bad. Sorry. Shame no, on me. Bro. <laughs> uh, Carly, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So we had one question um, on Instagram from Thomas Perk. And okay. Thomas asks, what's your approach to memorizing something such as Raybon B? Or mm -hmm. even if you want to get more general, maybe your approach to memorizing different types of music, different yeah. types of repertoire. Yeah. Um, oh, bad touch. Like, how do you do that? Or bad touch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or meditation, number one. <laughs> yeah. Or that. How do you do that? <laughs> well, you know, 
I start to learn differently when I start to travel a lot, which means when I didn't have the chance to practice <laughs> um, physically. So um, at one point I said, okay, how can I use the time when I'm traveling, when I'm in the airport, when I'm in the flight or when I'm in the train? Actually, I start to read music like conductor does. And I understood actually how crazy uh, our learning process is or was, you know, because when we learn a new piece, what we normally do, what we generally, what I did also uh, five years ago was, you know, uh, opening the, the score, reading the score as, as, yeah, as good as we could, you know, with the, with the eyes and, and mechanically with the ends, trying to, to make all the, all the right notes and trying to make all the dynamics and, and, and you know, and then try to, to, to not have let, uh, tension in your body. And I think this is, this is crazy because we are trying, you know, to, uh, to do everything in one, in one time uh, for the first time, which is, you know, it's, I think it's very stressful, especially for our head, you know? And that's why I said, but what if we divide the learning process in different steps? So, you know, like a, like a bodybuilder, if he wants to take 150 kilos or, or I don't know, he will start with 10 kilos and tomorrow he will not try to, to take 140. But this is actually the, the way how we do it. So we start to learn music and then because the music is so nice, we want, we try already to, to make a performance on, on these bars. We, we try to interpret already the music, which is, I think, very, very dangerous because this is, I think, the, the reason why we learn uh, making tensions in our body, why we learn wrong notes, why, you know, everything what, what comes together. So the, the, this is the reason why I start to divide this process, this learning process. And um, it's very simple. So I start to, to read a piece first without instrument, reading the score like a conductor would do, analyzing the piece, trying to understand if there are similarity, trying to understand dynamics, trying to understand where the climax are, you know, really analyzing the whole piece and having a first visualizing the score especially if we play a multi-set piece, because every time we have a new instrument, you know, if we play a rebond B, we have a different instrument than if we play uh, meditation number one or if we play Safa. And that's why I think it's, it's very important visualizing first our instrument, so, or our setup and reading together, because after when you will go back uh, to the instrument it's already something done and then you can focus yourself on on other aspects on other elements and this is something that i suggest not only you know to 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 learn music by heart but uh, actually to it should be the normal approach divide these elements start analyzing music then go on with priorities dynamic notes, colors, emotions, everything what comes next. So when you when you're studying the score, you're you know reading it like you said, looking at it away from the instrument, do you yeah. like to listen to recordings during this part of the process or do you like to use you know your your own ideas and your brain to come up with your interpretation at that time? Sure. I like to use all my own ideas. Yeah, I think this is the best way because I after I think we get influenced. Uh, to another uh, performance, which shouldn't be a thing. If we have, of course, some questions, I'm sometimes, of course, I, I have a look at, at other performances, but this is something I do later. Yeah, yeah. If if I do it, yeah. I love I love when you find little tricks, you know, to memorizing things. And I'm not a good memorizer, especially a multi question. Okay. But I, my student, actually, the the winner of the the intro music contest recently. Uh -huh. We were having a lesson on Rebon's B. Okay. And he um, <laughs> he plays it great. He's already playing it great. But I pointed out, hey, notice the left hand. It's the same series of drums for like yeah. a long time. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, he felt so stupid. He's just like, oh, holy crap. That's such, a, <laughs> that's such an easy, like... But it's amazing. Like, um, I don't think he'd mind me saying that because he, he's already playing it so, so well. But 
that's one of those things like, hey, yeah, if you ever didn't notice, like it's the same series of of uh, outline in the left hand. It's like, man, that's a huge part sure. of helping helping it being memorized, you know. And and this is also, you know, um, I think very helpful because one aspect is learning music and playing music. And one other aspect is having a performance. And uh, if we divide uh, in the learning process those different aspects, I think we will come in one point where we really can focus ourselves in our body language because I think this is the vehicle for the communication. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I was going to ask, do you think it's important for a young performer, say if you have someone who's a teenager still or a freshman, is it important that they first start learning music by that way, you know, doing the visual and mechanical at the same time so that they hit a wall and then they go and separate the mental practice from physical practice? Or do you think that this is something that we can start teaching even to very young people? To, yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I think we can start to teach also to young people because, you know, I think this gives you also the possibility to, to, to be faster. So I always had the experience to learn the pieces faster, you know, and, uh, and faster, it means not only faster, but also better. So the quality of how you learn, it's, it's a better quality, it's faster. And, and, and that's why, why not? Of course, I think we should uh, at least uh, try to, to give uh, these possibilities or to learn, uh, to, um, to teach this to young, younger people. And then I'm sure they also will found other ways to learn and 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 you know but indeed i think this should be uh, the basis where to start learning music in my personal opinion of course so yeah. <laughs> no but it's 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 trialed it's tested and it's confirmed i mean it sure, works so, sure, yeah. sure. i wanted to, to go back to your topic of morality and spirituality in music I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more of how you use music as a platform or a metaphor to grow in these other humanistic ways. Yeah, well, you know, I think I see music as an universal language. And we do have the fortune of uh, communicate through music, through emotions, something which is which could be very, very deep. So music was for me a vehicle, of course, to, to, to grow and to train moral and, and performance character. And it starts in the school. So there where I, I, I got to know, I, I, I knew friends which had kind of the same um, values and priorities of mine. And I think also this is very important, you know, the kind of teamwork. I think it's very, very important where you are living with. So, and, and this is part also of your character growing because we get every, every time in touch with our family, with our friends. That's why it means we are every day also influenced of them. So the music, yeah, this basically was and is still every day for me, a language, how to communicate and being a better person. Well, because, because, you know, we also need to spend so much time on ourselves. We need to work so, so hard with ourselves. We need determination. We need passion. We need so many different values that I think music like, but as well, you know, sport, heart, dance could become really a vehicle to, to, to train our character and not become competitive vehicle. I, I like that you said that because something I used to, and I, I guess I still stress to students is that, you know, there's a lot of science behind what you're saying too. You know, I mean, the fact that we all interpret a tritone a certain way, you know, just mm -hmm. two notes versus a major six, we interpret another way. Like they all have a, a little emotional response that's very sure. scientific and, and like sure. very consistently uh, happens with everyone. I know I'm chewing a Tic Tac. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> It'll be all right. <laughs> she has to take over for Ben. Ben would just, yeah, kill me for chewing gum or having a tic-tac. <laughs> but like, so imagine like, okay, so if you have like an inherent emotional response just from just at the intervallic level in music, yeah, if you have like a whole hour of a cocktail of 
emotional interaction yeah like there is a lot of actually scientifically emotionally what that what that can do to us it's cool absolutely i didn't plan on i didn't plan on talking i thought i've talked a lot i wouldn't talk anymore can i ask, <laughs> can I ask my students question ryan carlisle's question yeah sure. it it's about mallets i saw it here let's see where did it go mallets there it is oh yeah so our buddy ryan carlisle asked can you talk about your mallets from AP? What's AP? Is that a profession? That's <laughs> yeah, a AP. Yeah, a profession. We're, we're making mallets now. When the Ksenia, when did you do that? Uh, well, we start uh, to work together. I think about three, four years ago. And yeah, Alessandro, um, it's a great guy. He tried to, you know, to make my sound philosophy happen. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd. Um, you know, I don't feel to say those are the best mallets because I think it's very personal. So the mallets are very personal. I think everyone should try different mallets and then they should say, okay, this is near my sound or my way of playing and these other not. So uh, basically, of course, they are thought to play in, a, in bigger halls, so in concert halls. And also there are different models uh, which are made to play with orchestra. So, you know, the approach, it's a little bit different than, I don't know, Steven's uh, mallet. That's why I think it's very important that before buying mallets, we know what do we actually need uh, in a musical way. What's our priority in a musical way? And then to choose which mallet do we need to, to buy or where. That makes a lot of sense. They look of beautiful. Course. I was just looking over the website. They look really, really beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Well, if if an Italian man says <laughs> yes to a mallet, it's going to be beautiful. It cannot be aesthetically offensive. Don't worry about that. That you can be sure of. Um, Simone, can you tell us a little bit about your collaboration with uh, Darman on the recent yeah. concerto? How was that? Yeah, this was very inspiring. Yeah, you know, I was in the 2000, 2014, I was still not sure uh, if choosing uh, Frozen in Time as a piece in the final or Fuochi d'Artificio from, it was another compulsory concerto. But at the end, I, I choose Frozen in Time because I thought, yeah, there are so many colors and, and that's the reason why I played. Actually, this was my first approach uh, with Dorman music. And, and after... I got in contact with him after a competition and and I told him, yeah, would you be interested on writing a new concerto, which shouldn't be, any, I think, the same of Frozen. So we should analyze other musical way of playing. And he was very, very open mind and, and it was a great collaboration, which was, I think, more than more than three years. It took more than three years. And I'm very, very happy with this because I think he is one of those composers which really understood how to write for percussion music, not only in a vertical way, but more in an horizontal way, dimension. That's lovely. Yeah, I, I think from what I've heard from people, you know, premiering different works or just yeah. being the first one, say, in their country to encounter a yeah. piece. So everybody goes to the concert and is like, how did you play Frozen in time? <laughs> I mean, it seems like he really challenges the percussionist every time you have to so, reinvent yeah. your how you use your body in order to conquer sure. that music. But it's so effective. And I've also never left a concert hall uh, that that piece wasn't like everybody's jaw was on the floor. Yeah. They just love, love I can music. imagine, can imagine. He's, he's incredible. Um, so now a little more of a personal question. You played this piece with the Belgrade Philharmonic, right? Yeah, I think the Frozen in Time, yes. Yeah, Frozen in Time. Yeah, 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 yeah right. But did you, did they actually provide, this is my uh, hometown orchestra, so I asked this okay. off, off air. Ah, cool. <laughs> but they, they told me, my, my former professors texted me, it's like, it's okay. amazing, da, da, da. Oh, was, nice, yeah, thank they, you. They loved, they loved having you there. But did they actually provide the Anglocken for you, or did you play without? I, thought, I don't I remember, I don't remember, I think... Because I saw they took a picture of your setup and I was like, where's the Almglocken? Did you guys find Almglocken for Simon? And I don't remember because I, I played 
frozen in time for I think two or three times without and I don't remember if this was the first time I played it without uh -huh. or with only one octave because I also told Evner I think this is in a long term I think in a long-term way it's a limitation you know because you never found it everywhere but then we realized actually we can play it also with one octave which is also working very well mm -hmm. and in this case I think in Belgrade it was a case where I decided to to play without and I did it uh, kind of arrangements with marimba and vibraphone together I think That's but I'm not sure did you did you sew cobalt no, or in the picture no, I, no. I was uh, I mean I didn't see the the the, the Anglican were in there Anglican, and I yeah. wasn't at the concert because I was okay, in the US, okay, okay. but I was just like How is that frozen in time? Right, right, right. And you're what right. is he gonna do? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think yeah. this was the first time where I played it without, without, and where I understood, actually, we can do it also without. <laughs> creativity, creativity. Yeah, and I told, I told Evner as well. Look, I think you should write another version without. <laughs> Yeah, it's certainly a very expensive thing for for people absolutely. to get. Um, absolutely, it makes the concerto much more accessible if, if absolutely not there. Yeah, but I think in uh, when I played it in the US with him uh, self conducting uh, this, I brought them from Germany, but it's also you know quite expensive because they they I think they weigh more than 30 kilos or, or so and so on. So it's not very easy to find them, especially if you travel in different areas, different continents. Yeah. But it's possible without. So if uh, <laughs> someone, if someone wants to play it, it should start first without. And then if he has the chance to do it with. Yeah, yeah. good, good. Thanks, thanks so much. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Uh, Carly, um, there's something, an event that happened this week of recording that you wanted to mention. Sadly, yes, um, we all heard the sad news, I think, this week that Viola Smith passed away on October 21st at the age oh. of 107, which is pretty remarkable to begin with. Yeah. Um, so as, as many of you probably know, Viola Smith was actually among the first professional female drummers in the U.S. Oh. Um, she was born in Mount Cavalry, Wisconsin in 1912, and she grew up in a family of musicians. She had seven sisters and two brothers. And all of the girls in the family played in this ensemble that their father put together called the Smith Sisters Orchestra. Um, and she was asked in some interviews, like, how did you end up choosing the drums? And what she said was, well, my older sister played trombone and my other sister played saxophone. And so what was left when I came along was the drums and I was thrilled. Um, that it was just decided. So they played in the Smith Sisters Orchestra and they played like locally and they toured a little bit. And gradually as her older sisters grew up and got married, it was just Viola and her sister Mildred who were left and they formed a group that became quite famous called the Coquettes. And then after several years touring with them, um, when Mildred got married, Viola decided she's tired of touring and she moved to New York City in 1942 and established herself there. I'm trying so hard not to get distracted, Casey. <laughs> if you're watching, if you're watching on YouTube, check the backgrounds because they're just, great. It's just photos of her and her her group. She's trying to help. I'm being helpful. was upside down, right? Well, oh. yeah, I that was a technical <laughs> error, user error there. <laughs> Well, what you see here right now, that what does that say? Schmidt Sisters Orchestra, Mount Cavalry. Yeah, that's before the coquette. Coquettes? Croquette? I don't know that word. Croquettes. Croquettes. The coquettes. Coquettes. So in 1942, around the time that Viola moved to New York City, she received a summer scholarship to study timpani at Juilliard. And she began playing in bands that had vacancies due to the war. A lot of the musicians were being drafted. Um, and shortly after she moved to New York in 1942, she wrote an article for Downbeat magazine, and it was titled Give Girl Musicians a Break. And she's essentially stating a case for band leaders to, hey, hire women. And in fact, uh, here's a little bit of what she wrote in this article. She wrote, instead of replacing them with what may be mediocre talent, she's talking about replacing the male musicians who were drafted to the war. Why not let some of the great girl musicians of the country take their places? Girls work right along beside men in the factories, in the offices. So why not in dance bands? After this time, Smith went on. She studied with Billy Gladstone. She played with Phil Spitalny's Hour of Charm Orchestra, which was another all-female 
orchestra at the time. Um, and she was featured in two movies, When Johnny Comes Marching Home in 1942, and then the Abbott and Costello comedy, Here Come the Coeds in 1945. She played at the inauguration of Harry Truman, and she played the original 1966 run of Cabaret on Broadway. And she said it in, in one interview with TomTom Tom Magazine that it was a highlight of her whole career, those cabaret shows. Um, so on top of being a really wonderful drummer, Viola was known for her trademark setup that notably was never copied by anyone. She had two suspended, what looks like Chinese tom-toms on either side of her. Yeah, thanks, Casey. There it is. Mm. Um, and it's so cool. If you if you search her up on YouTube, you'll find clips of her, her playing and just moving seamlessly between those drums and the rest of her setup there. It's so cool. It's rumored, although nobody copied this, nobody started suspending toms like that. It's rumored that Louis Belson was inspired to start using two bass drums in his setup after oh. watching her play and meeting her. So that's kind of cool. I don't think either of them wow. ever explicitly said, yes, I copied or yeah, he copied me, but it's interesting. Yeah, I read that it was after Louis Belson saw her perform live, he started doing that. So whether it's like, oh, he definitely did it because of that. But this is actually a trend in jazz of the time. Like you'll see two bass drums, photos like Buddy Rich, two bass drums, Louis Belson, two bass drums. And yeah, it's not something we think of as like a jazz thing. Certainly today, it's like the least cool thing a jazz musician, jazz drummer could do. Two bass drums, like what? That's a metal, that's a Metallica thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a heavy metal thing that's the least jazz thing you could do but they did it a lot you know and it was such a show like like you know Viola's show I mean she's such a showy mm -hmm. drummer and also the amount of toms she used too she was one of the first people to use all those toms some like 13 drums total in right show. that's yeah. what I read yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. sorry go ahead Carly yeah, well, in, in addition to all these performing credits, she had endorsements with Zildjian, with Ludwig, with the WFL Drum Company. Um, and as of a year ago, I found an article that was published in 2019. She was still playing occasionally with bands in Costa Mesa, California, where she lived. The bands are the Peacemakers and the Forever Young Band. So imagine this, 100 and, 106 years old, probably she was still playing this year, too. Wow. Um, how amazing. she was moving her own gear? Amazing. I Absolutely. Hope I, I hope she helpful. I hope she achieved the status where she didn't have to move her own gear a long time ago. That it's only point. when you reach a hundred years old that other yeah. people start doing that for you. <laughs> I, I was I was hoping it would be 35. I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> You, know, you, mentioned, you mentioned Mindy Abovitz, and there's a book I found called Women Drummers. And I guess Mindy Abovitz, who we've had on the show before, she she was part of the, she's not the writer or co-author, but she was a big part of the collaborative process in that book. And I don't know anything about that book, but I, I saw that um, Viola Smith is um, at least in there somewhere. And there's a photo of her signing one of those books at, a, I guess, a book signing. So yeah, you got yeah. something to do with it. Cool. Well, Viola was promoted in the 1930s, like a, as her career was picking up, uh, people were calling her the fastest girl drummer in the world. She was throughout her life sometimes called the female Jean Krupa. And I thought this was nice. I, saw, I watched an interview with Drum Talk TV and the interviewer told her actually Jean Krupa should have been called the female Viola Smith. Um, and, you know, you kind of as I was reading through, I was thinking like gosh, everything about her says, oh, she was an amazing girl drummer or female drummer or what was so remarkable was that she was one of the first professional female drummers and I started to think like can't we just talk about her drumming and everybody does like she's always recognized as an amazing drummer and amazing musician but you know that I guess for some perspective why it's so important we do talk about how yes she was a trailblazer um, female percussionist and drummer is that she was born in 1912 and you think about that's eight years before women even had the right to vote in the U.S. Like that's, oh, yeah. that was the, the environment she was growing up in. Um, you know, it was only a few years after women got the right to vote that she was starting to play the drums. So that's like, that's perspective. What she did was really, really remarkable to forge a career and, you know, hand in hand also forego a lot of the expectations of women of the time of getting married and supporting a husband and his business and, mm -hmm. and all of that and raising children. That's really remarkable on top of her musicianship, her creativity, showmanship. So I just want to say a heartfelt thank you, Viola, for, for leading the way for so many. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing video of her for, for years 
And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of sad, you know, it took her passing away for me to really dig into like, Oh yeah. So who is this? What, is, what, what why is she significant? And yeah. like the two bass drum stories and, and, and all of that, like, it's cool to learn a little more about her now. Do you, do you know, and, and I think the video I'm, the performance I've got in my background here, you see, she's playing with these mallets. Did you bump into anything as far as like what the heck she's playing with? They're not drumsticks. They're some kind of mallet. Yeah. I don't know. Like timpani mallet or yeah, here they look very timpani mallet. Yeah. But I was just wondering, and I guess it makes sense. She's playing on all these different things. She needs a multi-percussion mallet. Probably, yeah. Yeah, and here in this photo, it looks very clearly like it is a timpani mallet-esque felt kind of wrap. Yeah, cart cartwheel wrap. But I, I saw another video. I could have sworn it was like a rubber mallet. Oh really? I could have sworn. Yeah, it looked like it looked like bouncy ball mallets, but I don't know. Because those are also uh, baroque timpani, right? Oh yeah, looks like it. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, hand crank temps. So yeah, and then she's got a vibraphone back there too. So I guess that's her her multi percussion mm -hmm. mallet. <laughs> Very creative. Definitely a trailblazer. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Carly, so much. Um, thank you. And Kathy. thank you, Viola, for all that you've done. Yeah, this is this is incredible. A great segment. Well, um, I think we have sort of reached the end of our show, sadly, but we have had such a lovely time with you, Simone. Thank you for being on the podcast. Casey, thank yeah, you for thank bringing you. Simone. Thank you. Right. Thank That's you, right. everyone. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks um, for hosting, Ksenia. Absolutely my pleasure. I just wanted to connect a little bit, <laughs> get involved a little bit. Um, Simone, best of luck. What's your next concert? Tell us. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It should be in two weeks, but I I just got the info that I actually Italy will close all the theaters, uh, uh -huh. and and that's why I need to to double check. Mm -hmm. But let's see. Let's see. Probably we in two weeks or or three weeks. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's far away for yeah. For that's far away. We have time. Yeah. That's it's far away. <laughs> yeah. We hope we hope things turn out well. But stay safe. Yeah. And Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and it's thank you also for what they are doing. That's that's a great, uh, it's a great um, initiative. So thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for saying that. That's very sweet of you, everybody. We are looking forward to seeing you all again on episode two sixty. We don't know who else we can bring. Well, I guess Sajornayon, and then we're going to close the show. <laughs> Simon is going to help us book him now. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Simone, once more. And thank you. Forward to seeing you soon. And see you soon, hopefully. Yeah. See you later. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Bye.